Welcome to the Red Dove Podcast. We are women storytellers, and our stories center on Black women, activism, and mental health. I'm Blue. I'm Rainy. And I'm Liz. <laughs> My microphone. <laughs> I didn't have my microphone set up. Well, it's the hundredth episode, and I'm still fucking up. Okay. Like, first of all, we all sat there, and you were like, "All right, let's do a, a test. Let's make sure everyone." And I was like, "Wow, she's killing it with those headphones today." I didn't say anything about it, but I thought about the last time we recorded, and how you were complaining about them, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, she looks so good today with those." You're like, these are my daughters, so they, they have the pink unicorn horn and two ears, furry ears. This is lovely. You could hear yourself. That's why you were having no issues. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is great. Right. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> A mess. hate these microphones okay so as listeners remember covering asada we made a decision we're not going to go with the like a history biopic like we did for ida and for other series in the past this one we're going to be pulling text from asada's autobiography and uh having a discussion about it we bought our copy of asada an autobiography written by asada shakur with the foreword written by angela davis and lennox s Heinz. We bought our copy at Ida's Bookshop, which is a black woman-owned bookshop in Collinswood, New Jersey. Check her out. And if you're in the affiliate area, you can visit her sister store, Harriet's Bookshop, which is located in the Fishtown neighborhood. Can't go in? No problem. You can Google them and buy your books online from either Harriet's or Ida's. Please shop local and black-owned. Tonight's episode, we're going to revisit our friends, the Black Panthers, but this time we're going to be looking at them through the point of view of Asada. As our listeners remember, we covered the Black Panthers when we told the life and times of Elaine Brown. Uh, That was major source material was Elaine Brown's autobiography, which we also purchased from Ida's bookshop in Collingswood, New Jersey. So I'd like to read a paragraph from Asada's autobiography. This is Asada has just met and began working with the Black Panther Party in New York City. As much as I dug the party, I God, these fucking headphones. Okay. As much as I dug the party, I also had some real differences with its style of work. As I opened the front gate, of the Oakland headquarters. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess Oakland. Okay, so she's in California. She first met the Black Panther Party in New York. This was when the uh, Black Panther 21, the cops charged them um, with, this isn't a joke. This is literally what they charged them with in New York, plotting to blow up the flowers in the botanical garden. At some point from New York, she meets them in New York. She builds connections. She goes out to California. And this is Asada describing her impression and her opinions of the Black Panther Party in Oakland. As much as I dug the party, I also had some real differences with its style of work. 
As I opened the front gate of the Oakland headquarters, I felt just as nervous about going inside as I did about the Doberman pinchers running around the yard. A brother opened the door and I nervously blurted out that I was from New York and had come to check out the party. He acted like he was glad to see me and brought me into a room to meet some of the other Panthers. A group of sisters and brothers were sitting around the room laughing and talking. They greeted me casually, passing over a chair for me to sit in. Artie Seal was there, and I had to control myself to keep from gawking at her. I wondered how she felt with her husband in jail being railroaded and bound and gagged in court. I recognized the names of others. It was strange to be there in a room with those people. It was like sitting down on the pages of a history book. They asked me about New York, and I told them what was happening with the black students in Manhattan Community College, CCNY, and the black student movement in general, the anti-war movement, black construction workers, and whatever other work I was involved in at the time. I told them I had done some work for the New York Panthers and ran off a list of the ones I knew. Somebody asked me why I'd never joined the party. At the end of the paragraph, she talks about, or I guess it's the next paragraph. I knew I'd hate myself if I didn't say something. And uh, she talks about the spokesman of the, for the party talked to people and that their attitude had often been arrogant, flippant, and disrespectful, which is something that Elaine Brown kind of mentioned too, especially with Huey Newton, like that idea. And then they talk about, I told them I preferred the polite, respectful manner in which civil rights workers and the black Muslims talked to people rather than the arrogant fuck you style that used to be popular in New York. I said that they cursed too much and turned off a lot of black people who would otherwise be responsive to what the party was saying. <clears throat> the party wasn't as welcoming to a lot of people it wasn't welcoming to women and it wasn't welcoming to people who you know maybe don't like that style and you know kind of talking i think it's interesting to talk about how they just aren't black people again aren't a monolith and you know not all of us are comfortable with all the things that happen so you know when people think of black pant party and then they want to paint a brushstroke around everybody it's like there are a lot of differing opinions on how to get stuff done Going off of that a little bit, and I want to read just a few sentences that's going to highlight the disorganization of the organization. And I think if you read further and if you read Asada's autobiography, that's one of them. It's the misogyny. And then the, it was a difference of opinion of organizational structure, how black liberation, how to achieve that goal. No one's wrong. No one's right. It's, but it is so we want to highlight these women leaders of our history and, and their viewpoints. This is Asada again. It was growing more and more impossible to get work done. Everything seemed to be in a continuous state of chaos. They told me something about executive mandate number three. It said Panthers were supposed to defend the office against pig attacks. I was all in favor of self-defense, but I couldn't see giving my life up just to defend the office. It's the principle of the thing they told me. I didn't understand what principle they were talking about. One of the basic laws of people's struggle was to retreat when the enemy is strong and to attack when the enemy is weak. As far as I was concerned, defending the office was suicidal. The pigs had manpower, initiative, surprise, and gunpowder. We would just be sitting ducks. I felt that the party was dealing from an emotional rather than a rational basis. Just because you believe in self-defense doesn't mean you let yourself be sucked into defending yourself on the enemy's terms. One of the party's major weaknesses, I thought, was the failure to clearly differentiate between above-ground political struggle 
an underground clandestine military struggle. An above-ground political organization can't wage guerrilla war any more than an underground army can do above-ground political work. Although the two must work together, they must have completely separate structures, and any links between the two must remain secret. Educating the people about the necessity for self-defense and for armed struggle was one thing, but maintaining a policy of defending party offices against insurmountable odds was another. Of course, if the police just came in and started shooting, defending yourself made sense. But the point is to try and prevent that from happening. One day, in the not-too-distant future, any black organization that is not based on bootlicking and tamine will be forced underground. And as far as this country is moving to the fascist far right, black revolutionary organizations should start preparing for the inevitability. Fascist governments do not permit revolutionary or progressive opposition groups to exist, no matter how peaceful or nonviolent they are. It doesn't matter whether the fascist government simply outlaws the groups like in Nazi Germany or mounts a counterintelligence campaign to destroy opposition groups like the U.S. Wow, that, that's a lot. I, I think that that offers such a great discussion point about how we do this work and who's in charge of the work and, and having different ideas of how to do it. You know, like we, we can't all get there the same way. Right. You know, we've talked a lot about almost like staying in your lane and, and kind of doing what you're good at. And there are different, there are different aspects of this work for social justice and, and civil rights that everybody can't do everything. And you need people in different areas to make things work. And, you know, she's absolutely right. You know, you can't have like these two kind of sets of operations working simultaneously. Like you can't have the same people doing it. You need those people who are going to do the more under underground kind of work. And you need the people who present well above ground and can walk and talk and, you know, be a spokesperson for the people and, and for the organization you know, earlier she had talked about even how the party presented and its arrogance and flippancy and how much of a turnoff that is. And, you know, I think for organizations to be influential, they have to be able to, they have to be able to appeal to like a, a broad spectrum of people. You know what I mean? Like, so it sounds like even with Elaine Brown, like sometimes the Black Party, the Black Panther Party had a problem doing that. Like they kind of had this one way of doing things. And if you didn't follow that way, especially if you're a woman, it could be problematic. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't always work. If we remember the Black Panthers, wait, Huey was, he came of age in the 50s, if memory serves. I believe so. So if, if that's correct, I think that from what I've read of Black feminists who have discussed this historical time period that are alive today, I remember listening to that this is an evolution. So the Black Panthers, what they did had never been done before. And I think Asada, she, I don't think, I know, she arrives later. She really rises to prominence in the mid to late 70s. So she has the benefit of observing what the Black Panther did. And I believe that she builds from that. She and the Black Liberation Army build from that from a if you want to go historical timeline how we're building from the prior generations movements 
she's it's not like she's insulting them i think it's like it's an observation and opinion of what i don't want to do or what i do want to do and then down the road like five years later she's like at the helm of the black liberation army um i remember like everything from the, the red dove's opinion everything kind of starts with ida b wells right and even in if we want to go way way back when Ida was in her late teens, early 20s, she still believed in respectability politics, right? She still believed, hey, if we just get, uh, if we can all read and write, we're going to be treated equally. So I think um, from what I have observed and listened, when I listen to the Red Dove, especially on this topic, is that we're seeing an evolution of thought. Every leader is evolving from the past work. So I don't think anything is necessarily right or wrong. I don't know. That's just what I recall from what um, black feminists have said it, speaking about this time period in our history. Also, I remember that the Black Panthers, from when we read Elaine Brown, their opinion was that they were behaving that way on purpose to rile up the present thought, to act out against respectability that was chaining them as a people down to empower other black people to to not be afraid so there was a method to their actions it just seems like asada it just disagrees with that or maybe doesn't understand that that's that's the point that's why they're doing it they purposefully did not they wanted to show other black people to stop being afraid i remember that as a quote from elaine brown's autobiography yeah, definitely. And I can understand that idea too, but I guess I kind of understand also just coming from like, I even thinking of like my, my own grandmother and, you know, sometimes listening to the speeches and knowing like some of that stuff would be kind of a jarring for my grandmother, you know, like the, the way that the things are said and, and how it's said and things like that, that would be a little on the triggering side for her. She'd be like, that's a lot, you know? So I think that being able to have that aspect, but also have another aspect that is, and I don't think respectability for the sake of the white society, but I think respect, not respectability, not respectability politics, but really more for inside, you know, because she was talking about the way they were speaking to other people, you know, other black people and other black Muslims and all these other parties and this flippant arrogance and stuff, you know, so it's, I think, you know, it was really more the way that they were talking to fellow black people rather than their persona in white culture. I think it was really more not every black person would have been okay with the way things were, you know, the way they were saying things. And, you know, and that's okay, right? Because we had a lot of different approaches to this movement and all of them, you know, you think the approach that Huey P. Newton has was far different than the approach that Malcolm X had or Martin Luther King Jr. You know, we have these different ways of getting to the same place, but different ideas about how to get there. And, you know, and I think it's really interesting to look at it from, you know, a black feminist point of view during that time period. You kind of frame it based on the men who were at the helm and, but, you know, looking at it from the opinions of the women who were on the ground doing a lot of that work is I think really important too, to see, you know, how far do we go and, and, you know, making space for differences of opinions. And there's not one way to get to 
liberation. And, you know, I, I kind of like that when she was talking, at least that's, at least that's what I kind of um, picking up. Maybe I'm reading it wrong or maybe I'm misunderstanding it wrong, but that's kind of where I was like, yeah, I, I can, I, I can kind of understand that, you know, even me as a person, when I do the social justice work I do, there are different ways to approach things. You know, there are some people who are more comfortable approaching things in a different way. And, you know, it all is right at the end of the day, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to how you move about these systems, right. And, you know, so I would never attempt to try to tone police anyone. But, you know, also just making aware that, you know, there are some people who are uncomfortable with certain things, and we also have to take those things into account as well. You see a lot of the strategy of movements, just what you were just describing, just all the thought of how you will approach certain situations, how much thought that you put into that premeditated homie, like remember the 40 year old version, that quote, Yeah, <laughs> when he was trying to help Steve Carell get a girlfriend. He's like, look at me, like, you think I just wake up like it's all premeditated, homie. Like, that's a lot of what this work is, right? It's premeditated. Like, this is not by mistake that I'm choosing to use these words or I'm choosing to even dress the way I'm dressed. Everything is premeditated. Right. It reminds me, um, in the work that I do, I am definitely, my personality is... Um, definitely rallying against uh respectability politics that's probably if i was a therapist i would probably say something about like you know rebelling against my father who was like very the respectability politics was like steel like you are this is how you're going to be and if you say this word like fuck you're a bad person so i think clearly for me developmentally in being myself and feeling comfortable it is opposite to what my father wanted me to be he wanted me to be a a good little girl who probably college eh, either way you're getting married to a guy like that it was very and that didn't feel comfortable to me right. so I just when I embraced myself and was my true self even the way I spoke that's when I really started to feel comfortable with myself and I stopped caring what um, he or anyone else thought. But I take that attitude with me into the um, organizational work that I do. Um, I work, uh, sometimes I work in communities with a lot of white people, uh, it, particularly white people in, say, their, their 50s to late 60s. And um, I bring up their ages because I think it's important. I think that that's, um, that's probably like the age of some of our parents. And I think that there's this, I've observed in my experience, there's uh, that generation, you know, we, they want you to be proper and like you need to speak in a, in a respectful, civilized tone or <laughs> I'm not going to hear what you have to say, you know. And so I'm purposely challenging that and because I want them to challenge why that even matters to them. Uh, but that's a whole other discussion for another day. But my counterpart in this work, she plays the good cop. Sometimes she is much better at bringing people together and having conversations. And she also has the advantage of knowing these people because um, she's been around them for a much longer time than I. So 
uh, that's our premeditation. You know what I mean? Like I'm the bad cop because I'm really pushing the edge of their comfortability. And then she kind of, you know, let's bring everybody in. You know what I mean? But she's she's a cab like me. Like we're very radical. But the way that we present ourselves to our community is very premeditated. And it works very well. We work very well together. It's a very good, I'm using my hands like ping pong. Like it's, it works. But it's a conscious decision to behave that way. And, and um, that's what you said. That's what made me, that's what I thought listening to you, Rain, when you were talking about like how everything, it's like, it's very premeditated. There's a lot that goes into this. That reminds me, there's, um, I forget the black feminist name. She's a leader and she's working right now. But it's like, you think you just show up and a protest happens? Like, do you know how much planning goes into a protest? You think the audio equipment was just there on the sidewalk next to the speaker? Like, there's so much planning that goes into these things. And very rarely the pub, the people, all the people that are planning it are the public face. It might be one person. But there's actually 15 of us that have, like, coordinated all of this. It's just, like, again, so important because we have so many different strengths and we have to tackle this from so many different angles. And you need so many different kinds of people to make this work happen. You need, you know, the people who are, you know, who care less about respectability. And like, no, we got to get stuff done like you, you know. We need people who know how to gently but forcefully pull in reluctant people, you know, or like people like you were saying in their 50s or 60s who need to, need to be handled with gentler touches, you know, <laughs> with with the softer gloves, you know, and, and how to get them in but still hold them accountable, you know. So you need, you need so many different types of personality for this work. So it doesn't, you know, like, again, no monoliths here. Like, it has to be it has to be differences. It has to be everybody working together. But it is, like you said, it is a premeditated thing. How you present yourself, uh, how you speak, the way you choose to speak, all of it. You know, as many protests and things and organizational stuff as I've been to, that is definitely it. Well, what is our presence online? What are we saying? What are we not allowing on these pages? Because we, you know, how are we presenting to the public? How are we presenting to our members? All that has to come into play at all times for any sort of organization to do any kind of work. Yeah, Liz keeps me cracking up with their uh, monitoring of how they're presenting to their members and the community. They always have somebody on there that just wants to say something crazy. And it's always been a uh, white cisgendered person, either white cisgender male, white cisgender female. Oh, my God. I remember years ago, Martin Luther King Jr., the holiday in America that's observed I posted a direct quote from Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from his the book uh, Letters from Birmingham, which was late in his career, as we all know. And it's a very scathing review of uh, white Americans. This community lost their goddamn mind. <laughs> and it was enjoyable. I mean, because at some point it's like, I, I'm a really good writer. So when you're communicating with people online, it is essentially writing, right? Like you're texting in. So, and I'm a lawyer, so I'm already setting them up to fail. 
and then in two more moves I've got them like it's chess and it's but I do it because it's it's not for them it's for the hundreds other people that are reading it because they're learning and it's for the youth the youth but like the 20 year olds that are reading it that are going to join us because they get it um there was even one woman who was like this isn't a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King you know what I mean and it's like <laughs> yes it is bitch you know so it and I think at one point I wrote ironically the comments of this section are just proving his point you know and it was so it's like it's i remember that post you went in (laughs) (laughs) and that's how i met my now cohort of this group because we we were aware of each other we we operate in the same activism world but when this happened she was right there with me, like slamming the racists and helping me. And that's how we kind of like met each other. And now look what we have done. You know what I mean? So it's like, um, if, if you're interested in this work, sometimes it's just as simple as keeping your eyes and ears open as to who's doing what on the ground in your town. Let's talk about Huey P. Newton for a moment, shall we? Oh, we shall. <laughs> Politically, I was not at all happy with the direction of the party. Huey went on a nationwide tour advocating his new theory of intercommunality. The essence of the theory was that imperialism had reached such a degree that sovereign borders were no longer recognized and that oppressed nations no longer existed, only oppressed communities within and outside the U.S., Listeners will remember from our series of Elaine Brown. This is his big, like, Coke-filled speech about Coke, um, like Coca-Cola, and how um, there's no borders anymore. It's just, do you enjoy a Coca-Cola? That speech that Elaine Brown thought was genius and groundbreaking, and to her it was. No wrong. These are all just opinions. Remember that. There's no right or wrong. Here we go. Asada. Back to Asada. The problem was that somebody had forgotten to tell these oppressed communities they were no longer nations. Even worse, almost no one understood Huey's long speeches explaining intercommunalism. intercommunalism. Huey Newton was not what you would call a good speaker. In fact, he had a kind of high-pitched, monotonous voice, and his rambling for three hours about the negation of the negation was sheer disaster. People walked out in droves. Instead of criticizing what was happening, most of the party members defended it. When I said that Huey needed speaking lessons, they jumped down my throat. When Huey changed his title from defense minister to the ridiculous-sounding supreme commander, and then to the even more ridiculous supreme servant, damn near nobody said a word. That was one of the big problems in the party. Criticism and self-criticism were not encouraged, and the little that was given often was not taken seriously. Constructive criticism and self-criticism are extremely important for any revolutionary organization. Without them, people tend to drown in their mistakes, not learn from them. That's interesting. This is definitely an insider's look. Like, Yeah. And it's not like... This is the facts. This is this right. is just opinion. This is a, a one of the woman leaders from the 1970s. This is American history. Asada. This is her opinion, and we all remember Elaine Brown's opinion. She thought that particular speech was groundbreaking. 
Right. The thing that's getting me is like how they're telling the same story, yet it's so different. And it really speaks to just how you all were talking about earlier on, how everyone has essentially like different gifts. So a lot of the women that we talk about and their mindsets are so far ahead of the time that they're in, which is probably just the plight of the woman, right? Because we all have been in those situations where we're like, oh my gosh, (laughs) two years ago, blah, 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 blah was going to happen. And it's happened and you haven't had, you know, you didn't make a plan or look, this is the results. These are the results that I already knew were going to come out. But um, her, she's talking about social emotional skills and it's like, she's just saying to consider the more that she begins to really discuss how she's thinking about things and what she's encouraging them to do. She's saying to just consider yourself, like, Think about before, you know, almost for me, I'm not going to add these words to it. I'm going to say these as my own words. My thing is, if you're going to do it, then be about it, like whatever it is, you know, because even like the younger generation, their mission is with the hands. Like you disrespect them, they use their hands, they don't talk, you know, but it's like with that, be educated in why you're doing what you're doing, right? Because we also see those mob situations that take place where all of a sudden it's just a whole bunch of people jumping on whether it's a thought process and um force trying to force others to believe it or whether it's physical or whatever it is you know it's very interesting because yeah she just wants them to think about like all right look if the if you're going to be speaking to people and putting out messages think about what you're saying before you say it and how you're going to say it, you know, and then be receptive, which is a new place, right? Like Liz, you were talking about that not too long ago. And I definitely woke up feeling the same of like, I finally have reached a place where I do not care what anybody thinks about anything that I do say, or even like the way I operate, you know, because I, I had a friend that said to me not too long ago, do you know when you're wrong? And I said, yes. And she said, then you know when you're right, you know? And if you know that you're in pursuit of something that is good for yourself, healthy for yourself and good for others, you know, it's like stand in that and be confident. And with that, right? Because that's contagious, which is a really cool thing. With that, know that whoever you're presenting, that's the real person that you want to present to the world. That reminds me of the, oh gosh, I'm showing my age. I'm 37. So TikTok, all of this stuff is very foreign to me. The, is it a reel or is it TikTok? It's a little, little mini video, I'm going to say, of that woman that was like, thir- being in your, I'm in my 30s, I, I own it. So she was like, being in your 30s, like low back pain, whatever. And then she's like, also being in your 30s. Like, body confidence, like, all this, like, I'm okay being in myself. And for me personally, it was a journey to get there. And I totally agree with you, Blue. Like, it's true. Because I think what we are better able to articulate now is that when you reach that point, it's reflected in the way you treat others. And I think 
when we really further dive into these situations, and that is the thing that makes these topics so hard to discuss oftentimes, you know, is that there's so much backstory to why someone wants to create an organization that has to, like, why do we have to do the work that we do? You know, that's that's the hurt, and that's where sometimes we get, we have challenges uh, choosing not to speak specifically from that space, but speaking from the space of from being able to reclaim your time, reclaim who you are. But that is, again, like that is such a forward thought, especially for that time where you do have the idea of what a person who, uh, who someone should interact with looks like, what they sound like, what they talk like. You know, those things led before, as we can see the results today with what's going on, even like you were talking about the fires earlier, Rainy, we can see the results of where that got us, of working off of <laughs> respectability politics. You know, so it's like, it's definitely a mashup that's needed, in my opinion, but also... It's just it's interesting that they're there they were both there at that time and they're like, This was so dope. I couldn't stand that mother like you know? <laughs> Exactly right. And I like it. And again, like we said, like neither woman's wrong, you know, it's how you feel and you know, what you're comfortable with. And and yeah, yeah, I thought that was really funny too, you know, just calling his whole speech ridiculous. <laughs> right. She right. was not here for it at all. <laughs> but like, I, I think that that's important. I think it's important for organizations to be able to do a lot of self-reflection too and grow and also, you know, recheck your path every, every, you know, often make sure that you're still going the way you need to go and you're still doing the right thing. You know, cause I think when that doesn't happen, then, you know, sometimes you can get really off track really fast and not realize it until you look up and you're like, oh my gosh, where am I? You know, and I think we've also seen a lot of black leaders during that time period who also kind of had those kind of awakenings. It's kind of like, oh, huh. You know, Malcolm X had that. Martin Luther King Jr. also had those moments where they're like, I, I think I might need to readjust. I might need to, you know, some realignments, which I think that also speaks to the maturity of person of, of people when you have more information and you change your mind based on this new information that you have or learning something new. I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't realize that. So true. And it takes a lot of strength because I think if you're insecure, self-criticism, although it's growth, it's very hard to go there if um, you're dealing with like feelings of insecurity or whatever. Right. I don't, if I recall from Elaine's autobiography, the general members, which at this point would be where Asada would be in the um, hierarchical uh, structure of the of the BP, they didn't know how much coke Huey was doing. Elaine yeah. kept that very private. She thought she was protecting him, if we can remember back to our series of Elaine Brown. So that's another thing. Like... I wonder, like, I think that would just add to Asada's opinion of him. Because if you don't know that this man is coked out of his mind, of course you're going to say, like, 
Well, not of course, but it, that's why I think she said this speech is rambling and crazy. And like his supreme commander, it just it reminded me most of the, like the ground level Black Panther party members did not know how much coke he was doing at his apartment. Elaine kept that very private. Right. And see, and again, it's that whole idea of self-reflection, you know, years and years and years ago, do you think he would have looked at himself being coked out like that and been like, yes, this is, you know, this road that I'm going to go down. You know, it's kind of almost like, again, if you're not constantly rechecking yourself and resetting and, looking at yourself and, and criticizing yourself, then you have to, which is, you know, the same thing that we ask of, you know, the government and our, these party systems, right? We ask America to check itself, look at, you're making mistakes. You're going on the wrong path. Take a look at what you're doing, America. These things aren't great. And I think if we ask that of the country, we also have to be prepared to do it of ourselves as well. Until next time. Okay.